Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. You may be seated and we'll take a moment to reflect on God's word. So this morning we're in the book of Revelation. We've been in the book of Revelation uh, for a whole week now. And uh, we're looking at these messages to seven different churches. And there's seven churches all in this area of kind of northern Turkey. And they're all centered around this city, Ephesus, which is like the main city. And then we've got these other six churches that are like the suburb cities around the city of Ephesus. And the Apostle John is in exile uh, the same Apostle John who you know, wrote the, the Gospel of John, the disciple that Jesus loved, one of Jesus' closest followers, one of the three, Peter, James, and John. He was there for everything for the transfiguration. And he wrote in the beginning of the Gospel of John, we have seen his glory. We saw it with our own eyes. And now he's ministering to these churches in northern Turkey. And he's in exile because the government wasn't happy with the things that he was saying and doing and teaching. And so they, they put him out on the Isle of Patmos. And when he's there, he receives this vision, this revelation of Jesus Christ, and this revelation from Jesus Christ. And it says uh, to tell the church to, uh, to tell about what is going to happen, to show his servants what will take place. That's what it says in, in verse 1 of Revelation and so I thought, before we look at this message to this church in Smyrna, it might be helpful for us just, just to put ourselves in their mind. So they, they gather together for Sunday morning, for Lord's Day worship, just like we do. But they're in a, a really hostile environment. And we know that, that uh, it, it, it's a smaller church. It's not the biggest church in the area. Uh, that they are... Um, in, in a smaller city, that, that Smyrna is just kind of this inconsequential uh, port city that's near the big city of Ephesus. Now it's the modern city of Izmir, and it's a, you know, the second most populous city in Turkey. But then it, it was just this small kind of inconsequential little uh, beach town. And, and John gets this message for the church, and, and, and uh, he gives it most likely to his disciple, one of John's disciples, a guy named Polycarp, who is the pastor of this church in Smyrna. And so John receives this revelation. He writes it down. He gives it to the pastors of these churches to share. And the one most likely who brings this message to the church in Smyrna is a man named Polycarp. 
who, if you know anything about church history, suffered a, a horrible uh, martyrdom in about the uh, mid to late second century. And so I, I just thought maybe it would be worth us taking a, a second to look at the life of this guy, Polycarp, the guy who's the pastor of this church. Because I imagine when the, the church got this message, I mean, it's just you know seven sentences, essentially, but it's from God. And so the pastor comes and he says, hey, I've got a message from God for you. I mean, this, this is here. Listen, listen to what Jesus Christ has to say to us. And I imagine that they just poured over these words and memorized them and repeated them and told them to each other until it just got in their blood. And so what happens? What kind of character, what kind of fruit gets produced when, when this teaching gets in your blood? Let's look at their leader, Polycarp. Now, uh, in kind of the mid to late second century, that you know they would have these big festivals, these big pagan festivals, and what they would do for fun, if you've seen like the movie Gladiator or other things like that, or Ben Hur, you know they would just kill Christians for fun. And so the mob was getting together, and they were kind of, you know, they were all getting riled up, and they were looking for something fun to do, and they said, oh, "Away with the atheists!" That's what they would call the Christians. Atheists, because Christians didn't worship any of the gods in the pantheon of kind of approved Greek gods. So, you know, they don't believe in our gods. They must be atheists. So they would call Christians atheists, and they said, get away, away with the atheists. Let's get Polycarp. Let's go find Polycarp, because he's, we know he's the head Christian in this area. And so they went and they found him. And by this time, by, you know, 155, 165 A.D., Polycarp's in his 80s or in his 90s. As far as we know, but he's 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 an old man. And uh, it says that the sheriff goes to get him and the sheriff feels ashamed (laughs) that he's got to imprison this old man who seems so gentle and so kind. And so he's taking them. He's taking him uh, to the stadium and he says, hey, listen, Polycarp, I mean, I don't really want to kill you. This is my paraphrase. I don't really want to kill you. You know, we don't, we, we don't have to do this. You've lived a long life. Um, and so what harm is there in just saying, you know, Caesar's God and offering some incense to Caesar? Because remember, the emperors declared that they were gods and the emperors were crazy. Even Caligula, who was really insane, declared that his horse was a god. So, hey, you have to worship me and worship my horse. So and, and Polycarp. The, the, the sheriff saying, what harm is there? Just just worship the gods we worship. It's no big deal. And Polycarp says, listen, I don't intend to do what you advise. And it says that, that angered them. And so they, they brought him to the stadium. And there was this, this, this great fervor of all the crowd. And, and again, the, the, the sheriff tried to say, listen, Polycarp, just offer some incense to see. Look, you know, just say away with the atheists. That's all we need to hear. You know, away with the Christians, away with the atheists. Just say that and we don't have to kill you. And Polycarp looks at the crowd of all these people who worship these pagan gods and he points at them and he says, away with the atheists. And now the sheriff's really mad. <laughs> so he goes, listen, I will throw you to the wild beasts. And, and this is what Polycarp says. I love this. He says, Eighty-six years I have served my Lord Jesus, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And he says, very well. And so they throw him and they burn him alive. And tradition says that the fire would not consume him, so they had to stab him and kill him. 
but his face was peaceful and unmoved. And it said, and this is the quote from the church history, it says, all the multitude marveled at the great difference between the unbelieving crowd and God's people. That's what happens when this word gets in your heart and gets in your soul and gets in your blood. These are the kind of people that this church produced, this guy Polycarp. So we're going to listen today to the message that produces a man like that. The Lord wants to strengthen this church in Smyrna, and I believe he wants to strengthen us. In this brief message, Christ offers the church three things. Perspective, preparation, and a promise. So let's look at it. Uh, First, perspective. Let's listen to who's speaking. Here it says, um, the one who's speaking. This is the words of the first and the last in verse 8. The one who died and came to life. Now, in every one of these messages to the church, uh, it draws on part of the earlier revelation of, of Christ's character, an element of who Jesus is from, from verse 1 and, and, or from chapter 1. And what's really interesting is for each church, Jesus kind of highlights a different thing about himself. So for each church, depending on where they are, depending on what they're going through, Jesus says, well, here's a, here's a little thing about who I am and about what I've done that's going to be especially important and especially precious to you. And isn't that true for us, too? You, you go through these different phases in life, you, and, and some doctrines about who Jesus is, some, some, some little bits of what might just be like this arbitrary theology. Then later on in your life, you go through this struggle, and you go, oh, that's such a precious truth now. I didn't see it before, but oh, I, I need to hear that now. Or when you're, when you're in a relationship with someone. You know, you've, you've, you've known someone for 20, 30, 50 years, and then there's things about their character as you're walking alongside of them that become sweeter, that become more comforting to you. And that's the way it is with the Lord and his church here. He says, hey, this is what you need to know about me. This is the one who's speaking to you. I'm the first and the last. I was there in the beginning, and I'm going to be there at the end. I died, and I came to life. So whatever's going to happen to you, I've been there, and I've been back. And I think this is really, really helpful, because have you ever been tried to uh, get comfort or give comfort just in, in kind of a textbook way, <laughs> you know, or like someone's going through something, or they're, they're grieving, and they're suffering, and and someone comes up to them and they say, well, you know, I've been reading about the five stages of grief. And it looks like you're going through like the bargaining stage right now. So I'm just going to, uh, let me just look. I think I'm supposed to do that. You're about to, you know, be through this next stage. That's the worst kind of comfort that you can possibly give someone. The comfort that really matters. The comfort that really means something. If, so, if someone comes alongside you and they say, listen, I know what you're going through. Because I've been there. I felt it. I, I know what's happened. I know how you're feeling. And I don't just know about it because I've read about it in some kind of book and I just have this arbitrary head knowledge. But no, no, I have heart knowledge. I've walked it out. I've been there. And I know what this road is going to be like for you because I've, wa- I've walked down it a little further than you. That's the comfort that Jesus is offering this church. That's the comfort he's offering us. He's been there. He knows. Listen to what it says. He says, I know in verse 9. Listen, I know what's going to happen. And then he says, he promises, he says, I will give. And then he says, I'm speaking. 
I know I will give. I'm speaking. I'm here with you. You can trust me. This is who is speaking to you. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, the first and the last, the almighty God. So that's the first thing that we need to have perspective on. Who's talking to us? And then next, he gives them perspective on true wealth. And this is really important because the church in this time, uh, if you didn't kind of participate in the emperor worship and all the stuff that was happening in society, um, basically you, you got marginalized, you got cut out and you got taxed by the government until you couldn't really do anything. And so this church is getting not just kind of socially marginalized and excluded, but they're getting financially oppressed most likely. And so this is a group of people. They're not. The wealthiest, powerful church. We're not talking about the crystal cathedral here, these people. So these people, it's a small, little, minority group of people. And they're fearful. They're unsure of themselves. And Jesus says, I know you feel like you're poor. I know you feel like everything's just a struggle right now. But in my mind, in my eyes, you're rich. And I think it's just so important for us to remember. You know, if you're purely materialistic, if, if this world is all there is, if you just kind of believe that, you know, we've got this life, got this one go around, and this is all there is, the Bible's not going to make a lot of sense to you. And especially the book of Revelation is not going to make a lot of sense to you because so much of what Jesus says about laying up treasure in heaven it's just not going to make sense. Hey, that there's treasure, there's wealth, there's things that, that, that moth and rust cannot destroy, that nobody can take away from you, and, and run after that kind of treasure. And not only that, Jesus says that, that our financial status in this life doesn't really have much bearing on our financial status in eternity. And Jesus said, you could be really, really wealthy in this life, but be eternally poor. You could be really, really poor in this life, and be eternally wealthy. You could, you could be really, really wealthy in this life. And also be really, really generous. And be sowing seed and, and, and laying up treasure in heaven. But Jesus is saying, there's a different perspective that's at work here. So, so look and see things from my perspective. You think you're poor, but in reality, you're the richest. You're my favorites. You're blessed. It's like Jesus says, many who are first in this world will be last, and the last will be first. So that's perspective on true wealth. And next, perspective on true worship. So you've got to understand that um, in this society, the Roman government, which was kind of oppressing these people, had a deal with the peoples that they conquered. And they said, listen, if you give up worshiping your gods and you adopt worshiping some of these Roman gods... Everything will be good for you. You can be kind of integrated in society. You can be, you know, citizens, have full rights. Everything will be great. But with the Jewish uh, people that they conquered, they made one exception. They said, listen, we know that you're not, you're not going to worship another God that you guys are like, that's, that's a big deal to you. So, um, listen, you, will, you just pay some taxes to us. And it's no big deal. We're not going to persecute you. We're not going to force you to worship all the the gods that the culture worships. And so if you were Jewish, you were kind of exempted from having to do all this stuff. And so as long as Christians in this early society 
were just kind of a brand of Judaism. As long as they were seen as just like another sect or um, another denomination of Judaism, they, they were safe. But once the church started growing, and especially once these little churches started bringing in converts and and people that weren't of kind of Jewish ethnicity came in and they started believing in this one God, they started worshiping Jesus, it became a a lot harder to hide under this kind of covering of, of, you know, being part of the synagogue. And so what would happen a lot of times out of resentment or just out of, you know, their own misplaced, um, you know, religious fervor, the, the Jewish people would say, you know, we're the real synagogue. We're God's real people. Those Christians, they're not Jewish. They're not the real synagogue. They're not God's chosen people. They're not, God, they're not the people who are gathering to worship God. We are. We're the true synagogue. And that's when it got really bad for the churches. That's when the persecution really got turned up. And so what the Lord Jesus is saying, he's saying, I know that these people say that they're the real synagogue. I know that they say that they're the real people of God, but they're not. You're my real people. And we know, we know this from Romans chapter 2, that, that Paul says, you know, worshiping God, he says, you know, being a Jew is not just about outward signs and rituals. It's about something in the heart. So he says, everyone that says that they're a Jew, that they're a worshiper of the one true God, is not. Just because they say they are doesn't make it so. But the ones who are really worshiping the true God, the one God, the ones who are really faithful, the ones to whom the promises of Israel apply are the ones who worship God in spirit and in truth, that it's a matter of the heart. And so that's what Jesus is saying here now. He's saying, I know that they say that they're my people, but they're not. They're following a different master and a different Lord through the synagogue of Satan. And that seems like, wow, Jesus, that's a really harsh thing to say about these people. I mean, they're a synagogue of Satan. And certainly this verse has been used to justify a lot of anti-Semitism, a lot of oppression, a lot of bad stuff over history. But I think what Jesus is saying is, is something really similar to what he says in John chapter 8, where he says to the Pharisees, he says, uh, you are following, you're not children of my father, you're children of your father, your father the devil. And they said, Abraham's our father. And he's like, if you knew my father, if you worship my father, you'd recognize me. And so that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, if you honor me, if you follow me, you're my true people. Don't let anyone tell you anything different. Now next, he offers us a uh, preparation, or we could say a prediction. Because remember, this is the, the purpose of this message in Revelation is to tell his servants what's about to happen. So to prepare them for what's coming, and this is what he says. He says, do not fear, you're about to suffer. And these people are probably saying, thanks, Polycarp, thanks, John, thanks, Jesus, for telling us we're about to suffer, we're already suffering. I mean, we're already being persecuted, we're already going through tribulation and trial and suffering. We've been shut out of the culture, everyone's saying we're irrelevant, they're saying get with the times, church in Smyrna. And Jesus is saying, don't be afraid. And I'm reminded of 1 Peter chapter 3 where he says, don't fear what they fear. Don't fear what the people around you fear. Don't worry, but be ready to give an answer to them who asks you. And I just love this, that God is saying, hey, I, I want to tell you, you're my special people. You're my true people. 
you're my children. I love you. I care about you. So I'm going to tell you, don't be afraid. Something's going to happen. And doesn't that make all the difference in the world? <laughs> if someone knows what's going to happen and it doesn't catch you by surprise, I think he's saying, I don't want you to be caught by surprise. I don't want you to suspect for one minute that something is going to happen to you that, that didn't pass by me first. That something came into your life that I, that, didn't, that I didn't allow to come into your life. And that's a huge temptation for us too, isn't it? When a trouble comes into our life, when something goes wrong. I mean, when everything's going right, you know, when we get the deal at work, I mean, when we win the lottery, whatever happens, when these good things happen, we thank God. I mean, just look at award speeches. Do you think the person who didn't win the Academy Award is sitting in the stands going, I just want to thank God for the fact that I didn't get this award. You know, that's thank, thank you, Mom. Thank you, you know, all this. But it, it's all coming from God's hand. So God's saying, don't fear. But here's what's going to happen. The devil is going to throw some of you in prison. And this to me is a little bit confusing because from the earthly perspective, you're looking at it and you're going, the devil's going to throw him in prison? Polycarp, the devil's going to uh, put you to death. Well, no, no, the sheriff did it. No, 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 these people are doing it. The government's putting us to death. But Jesus is saying, no, the devil's going to do this. Because remember, this is from this heavenly spiritual perspective. And I think we can make a couple errors when we talk about the devil in the Christian life, that we can say either nothing's from the devil, you know, no, it's not the devil, it's the, the, the people are, are doing this. No, 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 the devil's not tempting you, you just, you know, you lack self-control or whatever like that. But we can, nothing's from the devil, or we can say everything's from the devil. Man, the, the devil made me lose my job. Man, the devil made me fail that test. You know, you didn't study for the test, dude, that's why you failed it. So... Either nothing's from the devil or everything's from the devil. And I think the truth is, according to the Bible, somewhere in between, that there, are, that there is a hostile spiritual force at work in this world. And that there are things that we as Christians are called to do battle against. That sin, our flesh, and Satan, the devil. And those things war against us. As Christians, and, it, and it's, the Bible is very clear that the devil doesn't have unlimited power. It's not like um, this yin and yang thing where you have, you know, the devil kind of moves his chess piece and then God goes, well, that's a good move. I didn't see you were going to do that. And then God moves his chess piece and the devil moves. His. It's, it's not like that, like two equal opposite powers. God's over everything. God's in control of everything. And the devil, it's very clear, has limited power. And it's restricted to a short amount of time on the span of history. That ultimately, he's been defeated. That our Savior has crushed his head. And so what he's saying here, he does all kinds of terrible things. And from, from this spiritual perspective, yeah. The devil is about to throw him in prison. But God's in control. And you can know this because Jesus not only says how long it's going to happen, he knows it's going to happen beforehand. And so it, it, God has not uh, released control of things in Smyrna. When the devil starts throwing him in prison, they know that God's allowed it to happen for his own good purposes. Um, 
So we do have to acknowledge that, that Satan does have some kind of sway, but his power is not equivalent to God. Uh, there is one king of the universe, and he hasn't left the throne. We don't need to say, Jesus, take the wheel. He's already holding on to the wheel. He's never let go of the wheel. So the question is, why does God let this happen? Why does God let this happen to the church? Why does God happen? Why, why does God let this bad things happen to us? Why does he let the devil just run around and mess with people? And we know right now for this church that this trouble that they're going to face, this trial, this tribulation, it's not as a punishment for sin. It's not like God saying, well, you know, I know Jesus' death for you, you know, paid for 50% of your guilt. But now because there's this other 50% of guilt, we're just going to, I'm going to throw some stuff at you and you're going to have to kind of overcome it and then you can earn your way into heaven. That is a heresy from the pit of hell. That is not the case. What God is saying to these people, this church in Smyrna, notice that he doesn't have anything bad to say about them. Remember the church in Ephesus? He's like, I'm holding one thing against you. You've lost your first love. He doesn't say anything bad about this church in Smyrna. He doesn't have any fault to find with them, except he's saying, just keep on going. You're being faithful. And so the faithful church, the church that God commends, is the church that suffers. So we know he's not bringing suffering into these people's life because as a payment for their sin because they have, because they're guilty. Um, he's bringing this suffering into their life because he loves them and he cares for them. The Bible talks about why God brings suffering into our life and why he brings trouble. And it uses this category of testing. That's what he says, uh, that, that you'll be put in jail and it, it'll be for your testing. And when we think of testing, we think of this like mean professor who says, all right, you have a pop quiz today. And everyone goes, oh no, I hate you, professor. Sorry to all professors in the audience, but, you know, in, in the Bible, testing isn't just this cruel, arbitrary thing. Let, let's see how much you know. Let's see how holy you are. But it's a purifying thing that he's saying, okay, I, I, I'm going to make you better for me, for my purposes. I'm going to make you better for each other. I'm going to free you more to love me and to serve me. I'm going to free your heart from all the fake, false loves that war against you. So that's why I'm doing this. I'm going to test you for your for his own mysterious good purposes. In the end of toward the end of Revelation it says all nations will come and worship you, God, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And I really do think at the end of time we'll look back at all of this and we'll go, God, you were righteous. The judge of the earth has done right. We won't be able to find any fault with his plan, with his timing. His purposes are mysterious, but that doesn't mean they aren't good, that they aren't right. This is what John Frame says. He says, from the evils of history, God has brought unquestionable good, worthy of the highest praise. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. This light momentary affliction, it's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison so jesus is allowing these people to go through trial how does he feel about it i mean is he just this god that's far off and, and removed and doesn't see uh or or cares in some way but doesn't re- doesn't really know what's happening when well, we know we know that he knows what's happening uh, um when i was reading this uh, this 
passage from uh, the book of Acts came to mind, and I thought, wow, this is, this, is, this is so profound. And I don't want to stretch this too far, but this is what it says in Acts chapter 9. Paul, uh, Saul, who then became the apostle Paul, is killing Christians. He's persecuting Christians. He's making Christians suffer. Literally, he's hunting down Christians. Christians who are in different cities, he's saying, I'm, I'm going to hunt them down. I'm going to make sure they die. And on the road to Damascus, he gets stopped by the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord. He sees him, and this is what Jesus says to Saul. He doesn't say, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Even though Saul was persecuting his people. He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you hunting me down? And again, I don't want to stretch this too far. But I think it's so easy for us as Christians to think that Jesus identifies with us in his death on the cross. And then after that, you know, he's resurrected up into heaven and, you know, we'll, we'll see him again one day. But I don't think Jesus' identification with us, his knowledge, his intimate involvement with you ends when he died for you on the cross. That somehow that Jesus is so wrapped up in the lives of his people, that he's so involved, intimately knowing every single detail, every hair on your head, every tear that falls, every word, that when, when, when suffering comes to you, suffering comes to him. When you hurt, he hurts. When you cry, he cries. That Jesus knows that he's not far off and removed. That when Christians are persecuted, when Christians suffer, God is persecuted. So take that for what you will. And then to prepare him, he says, you'll have trouble, you'll, have, you'll face tribulation, you'll face trial for 10 days. And just a brief word, because when you read the book of Revelation, um, one of us was going to have to talk about this, and Paul was like, you should talk about that. So, Numbers in the book of Revelation. It seems like everything happens in 12s and 10s and 3s and 7s. And you're like, what's the deal with that? Briefly, just this type of writing, apocalyptic writing, these, these visions that come from God, numbers are largely symbolic. Now, that doesn't mean everything's symbolic. But it does mean that a lot of times numbers can be symbolic. So what you don't want to do, one problem that Christians fall into is they, they treat the book like a, like a puzzle that you need to solve. And uh, this is so helpful. I was reading this commentary, and, and the guy said, it's not a puzzle book, it's a picture book. So don't try to figure out what each little number means. Don't try to figure out what each little thing refers to. But it's, it's, it, it's a picture book. It's painting a picture of something. It's telling a story. So you see, you, you, you see the beast? Hate the beast. You see the church, cheer for the church. You see God, he's the hero, cheer for the hero. That's what it is. And when we try to puzzle out every little detail, sometimes we can miss the forest for the trees. So it's a picture book, not a puzzle book. And so what I do get from it's going to last 10 days means maybe, maybe it is going to last 10 literal 24-hour 20, days, or it's going to last for a period, whatever it is. But there is going to be an 11th day. There's going to be an end. It's not going to be this unlimited time. It's not going to be 100 days. It's not going to be 1,000 days. It's not going to be a million days. He could have said that, but it's going to be 10 days. It's going to be a period. And then there's going to be a time when it will end. And how comforting to know when you're in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trial, and it just feels like it's never ending that God says it is going to end. Oh, that's so helpful. 
So, last, he gives us some promises. Briefly. He says, to the one who conquers. At the end of every letter, he says, to the one who conquers, I'll give you this. Here's your prize. And I think what's so interesting here is what conquering means for the church in Smyrna. When we think of conquering, I mean, what do you think of? You think of these big, strong guys who kind of come in, you know, and they you know, plant the flag down and they go, yeah, we did it. And high fives all around. We conquered, you know, we're the strong ones. We're, we're the victors. And for the church in Ephesus, what did conquering look like? Remember, Ephesus was the, uh, the doctrinally sound, the orthodox church, but they lacked love. So for Ephesus, conquering meant, hey, learn how to love again. Get over yourselves. Fall in love with me again, church. For the church in Smyrna, what does conquering mean? It means being conquered. It means getting thrown into jail, getting killed. It means be faithful to the end. It means dying. What does winning look like for them? It means being a loser. (laughs) It means that the world looks at you and they think you're a loser, church in Smyrna. But in my eyes, you're a winner, and that's what matters. Again, this heavenly perspective is so, so helpful, I think, especially in our culture, because we look at some of these promises, and we look at some of these verses, to him who conquers. God wants me to be a conqueror. God wants me me to be victorious. He wants me to be an overcomer. And we think, well, then I'm definitely going to get that job. Then all these things are going to work out immediately for my good, right? Then, then this relationship is going to happen or this, or, you know, or this person's going to get better. I'm never going to get sick. I'm going to have beautiful, healthy, happy children. I'm going to be beautiful, healthy, and happy. Gosh, especially in Wilmington, North Carolina. I mean, look at the billboards. What do we care about? Being healthy, being happy, feeling good, looking good. And Jesus is saying, that's what the culture loves. Be willing to be a loser if you want to be a winner, in my eyes. If you want to conquer, you might have to be conquered. Gosh, that's hard. <laughs> I imagine they're going, this is really difficult. You Really, you want us to just let them put us to death? And so for us, this, this is a hard teaching too. This is a hard promise because... We're giving up something that we can see to get something that we, we can't see. This is what Jim Elliott says, the, the, the famous uh, missionary. He says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He's saying, you're going to give your life and I'm going to give you the crown of life. I'm going to give you something better than anyone has to offer on this earth. You could think of Smyrna as kind of the crown city. You know, Wilmington's the port city. Smyrna was kind of the crown city. You know, so, so their god, their city god, had a crown on its head. And the, the crown kind of looked like the cityscape. The, the, the battlements of the city, when you looked at it from a distance, kind of looked like a little crown. And so they said, you know, Smyrna, you're the crown city. That's what I'm imagining, they said. But, you know, so Jesus said, hey. I've got a better crown for you. I've got a real crown. I've got a crown that's going to last. And I'm going to give it to you. Just be faithful. Do not be afraid. To those who are faithful, 
everything bad is going to come untrue. This is what uh, Tim Keller says about Romans 8.28, that God works everything for good for those who love him. He says, if you're a Christian, your bad things turn out for good, your good things can never be lost, and the best things are yet to come. Church in Smyrna, all this bad is going to turn out for good. What's good, what you have now, you're never going to lose it, and the best things are yet to come. So trust me, be faithful, don't be afraid. And then he says, if you're faithful, there's pain coming. If you're faithful unto death, I promise nothing, no harm will come to you at the second death. You will not be hurt by the second death. And again, this eternal perspective is so helpful. Because we fear and we think a lot about the first death, our earthly death, when our heart stops and we die. And a lot of people are preoccupied with that and trying to put it off and run from it. Rightly so. But the Bible is very clear that there's something worse than bodily death. And that's spiritual death, the second death. To be separated, to be shut out from God forever. Now that would be really bad. Uh, C.S. Lewis paints this picture of of heaven as, as being noticed by God of having the most beautiful person in all of the world look at you and approve of you and smile at you and welcome you in and say, you belong to me, I love you. And this is what he says hell is. The most beautiful person, the most beautiful thing, the source of all beauty and goodness in the entire universe, turning his back on you, saying, I I never knew you, to be eternally ignored, to be snubbed. That's worse. That's worse than bodily death. And we know as Christians why we are not going to be hurt by the second death is because someone called out to God on our behalf and God turned his back. The father turned his face away as wounds which marred the chosen one bring many sons to glory. That's what the song says, that Jesus was shut out so that we could be brought in, that Jesus took our death, that Jesus took the second death for us so that we don't have to fear it anymore. And so Jesus says, be faithful, persevere. Death is not the final word. And then he says, it'll be over soon. And I think he's saying, hold on to me. Trust me. Don't be afraid. Be faithful. Stick it out, church. I remember going to the doctor as a little kid, and, you know, the doctor is not Disneyland. I mean, it's not fun when you're a little kid and you go to the doctor and they poke you and they do all these things to you. But I would go with my mother, and, uh, you know, when, it, when something was going to happen or give you a shot, I remember holding onto her hand and her saying, just, just hold on. And it's only going to hurt for a minute. And you're like, it's only going to hurt for a minute? Look at that needle. <laughs> it's only going to hurt for a minute. And if it hurts bad, just hold on tighter. Just, just, just squeeze my hand. <laughs> and I think what God's saying to us, what he's saying to this church is he's saying, hey, I know it's bad sometimes. And it might not get better. <laughs> but hold on to me. And if it gets really bad, hold on even tighter. Trust me. Don't be afraid. The bad's going to work out for good. The good things will never be taken away, and the best is yet to come. 
He who has ears to hear, let him hear.